everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering. I am incredibly excited about this fun, once-a-year tradition that, you know, we've been doing a podcast for about four months, Jeff Santoro, so this is our first time ever doing this thing we're going to do once a year. I'm Jason Hall, the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. What are we doing today? We have a bunch of guests, which we'll introduce in a minute, and we are going to give all of our a few listeners, uh, some reckless predictions for 2023, all sorts of reckless predictions with our, our esteemed guests here. But before we dive into that real quick for everyone listening, um, just a couple of quick reminders some housekeeping, uh, reach out to us uh, on Twitter at smattering show. You can email us at the smattering show at gmail.com. You can check out our YouTube channel. Um, but most importantly, we really appreciate if you can rate review and share, uh, the podcast, um, and also like the videos on uh, YouTube and subscribe there. That really helps us uh, get the show and the, and the uh, YouTube channel out to everyone. And uh, we really appreciate it. All right, everybody. I'm going to introduce our esteemed panel today. So first of all, all right, and back for second appearance in three weeks, Tyler Crow is joining us. Hey, Tyler. I can't believe you called me esteemed. That, well, honestly, it's funny you say that because when I said esteemed, I actually thought about saying our esteemed panel and Tyler. That would have made more sense. So, you know, you complete me. That's basically what this means, Crow. Also joining us, our good friend, uh, fellow contributor over at The Motley Fool, Travis Hoyam. Travis, also, you've got some really great ventures going on. Rive Projects, looking at artificial intelligence, looking at Web3. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm throwing a lot of things at the wall. You can find my work. Uh, YouTube at Rive, R-I-I-V. I try to keep it simple, you know. Four, Creative four disruption, letters. right? Hopefully, hopefully something that people can remember. All about disruption, following disruptive companies, what technologies are doing. That's what got me into AI, playing around with that. So we'll see where, we'll see where the artificial world takes me. I'm curious to find out what AI-powered reckless predictions Travis is going to make. Lastly, joining us is our good friend, Deidre Woolard. Deidre is she who wears many hats. Some of my favorite things about Deidre are her interest and knowledge about real estate and areas of investing like fashion that I just don't, I just, they don't fit in my big dumb brain. Deidre, it's awesome to have you on the show. Thank you. Okay. Let's get right here to it. Let's kick this off. And I think Jeff... Let's start off with, let's just, let's just throw a, I'm going to throw a softball out there for everybody. Deidre, I'm going to ask you to go first here, then Travis, then Tyler, then Jeff. Will the stock market, again, not the S&P 500, not the NASDAQ, not the Dow, the, what's the best, the Russell, the Russell 3000? Yeah, that's probably the best. 2000. It's yeah, so we'll Russell go with 2000. that. It's like the broad market index. Yeah. Russell 2000, Russell 2000. <laughs> Let's right, add so another 1,000 like, companies in. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to say the Russell 2000 as our, as our benchmark. Deidre, you go first here. Will the stock market go up or down in 2023? Ah, oh, we're going up, baby. Why not? Uh, yeah, I, I do think that the stock market is probably going to go up. Is it going to go up like a rocket ship? I don't think so. I, th- I, think, we're, I think we'll be better than we were this year, but I don't think we're going to be amazed and thrilled and, and on a magical rocket ride to, to fame and fortune. Travis, what about you? Up or down this year? 
definitely up. The market is a forward-looking mechanism. If Even if we do have a recession in 2023, which I think might be questionable at this point. Maybe we'll talk about that. But the, the market typically bottoms far before we're in the depths of a recession. So that means that we're going to be higher by the end of the year. Tyler, what about you? Up or down here? You're going to hate me. Flat. No higher than plus three, no more than minus three. Flat. Oh, wow. So it's going to underperform inflation. I guess that's technically Travis's or Tyler's answer, and Travis is booing him in the background. I love that. Jeff, what do you think here? All right. I swear this was going to be my answer. I was going to say flat also. I was going to same thing, Tyler. I don't, but it's similar to what Tidra was saying. I, I think it could end up a little up, but it's not going to be a lot, but I'm going to go with flat also. I think Jeff and Tyler should start a podcast called the Nobody's Going to Listen to It podcast. 3%? Come on. Always sideways. Oh, that's good. Mm. That's good. It's a good name. That's good. So here's the follow-up question, okay? So the follow-up question, and we're going to use the S&P 500, right? Are we going to see a record high, Deidre, in 2022 or 2023, 2022, the, the high was January 4th. Are we going to go, are, are we going to, are we going to get to a record high in 2023? Again, y- yes, but, but barely, I think, you know, I think, I think, I think we'll get to a record high, but I don't think it'll be one that is, is going to be that impressive. I, I think that, I think that the growth in the stock market is going to continue to come from the, from the more steady players for at least the foreseeable future. Dr. Hoyan, what do you think here? I'm going to say not a record high. I'm looking at the numbers. We're down 14.7% year to date. Uh, That's a big gain to gain back. What do you have to go up 20% to to make up that, uh, the way the math works? So that's a big year. I I just, I I don't quite see that because we might be, um, headed down for a little bit if we do have rising interest rates and a recession. Also, there have been a lot of big gainers over the last three to six months. You know, they've kind of flown under the radar. Some of the tech stocks that were beaten up have really bounced back. So some of that momentum is already kind of priced in. So that's that's where my head's at. Uh, my my answer is my answer is easy. I've already said flat, so I'm going no. We're already down 14 for this year, so flat says no. Jeff, yep, I'm a no. Also, not happening. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. The the S and P S and P five hundred peaked at forty seven ninety six somewhere around there. I believe it's around four thousand now. That's a that's a big twenty plus percent gainer. Um, I mean, I think there's a case that it could, but I think the biggest challenge is that a, a lot of the larger companies would have to gain significantly for that to happen, and I just I don't think that's because the market cap is so weighted to those companies that, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about like a Tesla that's down by half, right? For Tesla, the size of a Tesla, uh, you know, some of these uh, meta Microsoft is still down substantially for the, the, the amount of market cap for those companies they would have to gain to lift the market is pretty substantial. And I don't think the, the other companies can necessarily gain enough to offset that. So yeah, I don't think so either. All right, let's do reckless merger and acquisition predictions. So this could be a deal that gets done or a deal that gets blown up sometime in 2023. I have one, but I'm going to go later. Uh, Deidre, why don't you uh, kick us off on this one too and, and let us know what's your reckless 
M&A prediction for 2023? Uh, mine is that somebody, anybody is going to buy Kohl's, uh, I, but I think it might be Amazon, which uh, was, was rumored a while back. Uh, and the reason I think it might happen, I think that Amazon... Amazon can't let go of the idea of physical spaces, and it could be a place similar to to what they did with Whole Foods uh, in terms of getting getting deeper into physical spaces, which I think Amazon, it goes back and forth on it. But the bottom line is Kohl's, and, you know, it put itself up for sale. It, it obviously wants to be sold. Uh, the CEO has moved on to, to, to Levi's. It's, there's enough there that someone's going to buy it, and I'm feeling it might be Amazon. Yeah, I like that one a lot. I really do because I think one of the things that Amazon as a business is facing going forward is with its retail business, right? Let's move from AWS and not even talk about that part of its business, but thinking about its actual retailing business, everybody that's in retail now directly competes with Amazon, right? Whether it's Best Buy and Target and and Walmart, but even the supermarkets, right? I, I decided to not use Whole Foods through the Amazon app that was convenient and to try out Stop and Shop, which is part of one of the larger chains, just because it was so damn expensive, right? So I, I say all that to say that I think the challenge going forward is that a lot of these legacy retailers, they have that last mile benefit of their existing retail footprint. And I think for Amazon, one of the things that they need to do is start kind of catching up with some of that, right? Everybody still needs to build a lot of distribution, but Amazon's actually a little bit behind a lot of the, the brick and mortar retail. So DJ, I kind of, I kind of like that. I really, I really do. Can Travis, I, can I ask this a is question one, on that one. Go ahead, Travis. What do they do with all that space? Because that almost makes sense to me if they just sort of blow up the the model and make it a Amazon pickup location, which I think was kind of the theory with, with whole foods, but they didn't really do that. They just kind of left whole foods as it is. Um, so would there be a way to kind of rethink the entire thing and, and kind of turn those locations into what target drive up is? I mean, I literally drive by a whole foods to go to target drive up (laughs) because I don't have to get out of my car. Right. You know, so is that a way for them to sort of use that space or am I, am I crazy? Absolutely. Here? Well, I mean, think about it. You, you mentioned Target, right? And Best Buy does this. Home Depot does it, right? You, you order online, you pick it up in the store the same day. Amazon needs a footprint to compete with that, right? But I think that's part of it. I think so. Travis, keep going. This is yours is, doesn't surprise me at all that this, that you were going to say this one. Yeah, I think Activision Blizzard is going to end up not being acquired by Microsoft. We have already seen the Department of Justice, whatever regulatory branches in the U.S. are pushing back on this pretty hard. Whether those reasons are justified or not, we could you know, spend an hour debating. But it seems like big companies buying other slightly less big companies is probably not going to be a move that happens in 2022, I don't think, given given the current regulatory environment. And as a result, what does Activision stock do? I, I think it could fall 50% easily from here. And so that's, that's the one that I think is going to fall apart, and I think it's going to be absolutely terrible for anybody that's still hanging on to Activision Blizzard stock. I don't know about 50%, but 
I think if you look broadly across the industry, you look at what just about every other independent doesn't have an acquirer lined up on the hook to buy it. Um, video gaming stock, how much some of the, so many of them have come down. There's definitely a floor that's a lot lower than not even just the 95 per share that Microsoft's going to pay, but like the current actual Act- Activision share price. I agree. It's, it's certainly lower than it is. Tyler. Yeah. My thought is, is that we are going to see some of these startup EV companies get acquired by some of the, le- some, by legacy auto. Uh, I don't know who. I'm not going to make a prediction of which legacy auto. Some are better at doing it than others, and some aren't. But my thought being is that the one thing that EVs have shown so far is brand power, but we're in a dog doo-doo industry. It's lo- it, it's yeah. super capital intense for low returns. You can say dog shit and, on this podcast. It's okay. Okay. It's a dog shit industry. It just flat out like it's been a bad industry for returns and so we you've got all these startups in a hyper crowded hyper competitive environment that is going to be you know starving for capital with these massive rollouts with you know probably a lot of legacy auto that are desperately trying to build these brands of evs but are probably falling a little stale on that end so at current valuations, I don't know if any of them want to be touched. I, I actually think that we're probably headed for a little bit more pain train for some of these uh, startup EVs. And eventually, some of them are going to, are going to become valuable enough as just as pure brands uh, to be acquired. But yeah, I, 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 I kind of hate this industry, but I think that's where it's headed. Yeah, to, to me, and I think you hit on it right there at the end, I was going to ask you, um, Travis, this might be something you want to weigh in too, because I know you follow this space. To, to a certain extent, um, like the historical economics of the automotive industry have been very, very challenging. And Tesla is this outlier, has reset the expectations in a way that I think is going to lead to a lot of continued disappointment for investors. But what I want to hear from you on, and this is, Tyler, you talked about buying the asset becoming the brand. Because I think one of the things that Microsoft dealt with a decade ago with the success of of more smartphones, like the iPhone, honestly, for for example, um, was brand fatigue, where people were just tired of buying, you know, the, the Wintel personal computing device. And as much as Apple had a great product and the interface was great and it was wonderful, it was kind of crappy to start with, but it wasn't Windows, right? So it was something different. And I think Tyler's hitting on something that with the EV industry – it's the same thing. People, maybe people are tired of buying Ford or GM or Nissan or, or whatever or Toyota, and the, these the the brand the brand is is what could could be acquired. That's potentially true. What I'm wondering, as you were talking about that, is could they just acquire the business model? Because I think what we're seeing with Tesla specifically. The reason that they have higher margins is not because they have a better vehicle or or they're somehow wizards at manufacturing. They don't have to deal with dealers. They don't have marketing. They can rethink the entire service business model. Rivian has copied almost everything that they've done. Ford sort of tried to do that with their dealers and tried to you know, push a bunch of them out by saying, hey, you have to invest a whole bunch of money in electric vehicles. And I think kind of to their surprise, like something like two-thirds of those dealers signed up and said, yeah, we'll do it. 
Um, and so I think all of these companies would love to get out from under the dealer business model. So does acquiring an electric vehicle company and then sort of pushing your EV development towards that side of the business, does that even work from a regulatory perspective? I don't know, but, but I think that would be the other thing to think about in this, in this space. Right but now. the direct to retailer is such a weird loophole that like, I don't know this. I don't, sorry, the, the direct to retail or retail, like direct sale is such a weird loophole where it's, I don't even know if that's regulatory going to last that much longer either. So you set up an international holding company from which you order from, and then things are technically shipped overseas and then brought in on a custom order. That's how that like direct sales works. And we really think that's just going to last. Jeff, you were going to say something. I, I don't know the industry super well, but I'm fascinated by the whole dealer, not dealer you know, difference between like Tesla and all the other companies. And what I wonder if you could see an acquisition in this space, but, but one where they allow the acquired company to exist as it is just under the umbrella of the big corporate, right? So like, could you see a GM buy Rivian, not to make Rivian trucks, GM trucks, but just let Rivian be Rivian with, but just owned by GM so that they can circumvent the dealer issue and just have Rivians be the thing that goes direct to consumer while all the other, you know, legacy auto models continue with the dealership. I, I don't see the, the dealership cartel getting broken up anytime soon. We've seen, we've seen some JVs and we've seen some like startup investments from big auto in this, right, Travis? Yeah. Toyota was early in, in Tesla, but this is what General Motors is doing with something like Cruise, right? It is, it is a separate business. It is a separate capital structure, so that they can operate it kind of at arm's length, which is which is what you're saying, Jeff. So yeah, I, I think that would make sense. Um, how exactly that looks, you know, if if maybe they take a majority stake in the company, uh, but it stays public, that would be maybe be one way to do that. I think those kind of financial shenanigans have happened before in the industry, but yeah, the, something happening where the legacy auto companies use their kind of might and financial power to prop up some of these companies that maybe aren't financially stable today makes a lot of sense. Jeff, let's move on. Let's, let's, I'm going to have, I'm going to have a lot of fun with yours when it's over. This is foreshadowing by the way, what I'm doing. (laughs) All right. My, my reckless M&A prediction is that Zoom is going to make a big acquisition somewhere in the space of a team's like competitor. Um, And, and here's why I, I think Zoom's shift to focusing on not entirely, but having a big focus on enterprise customers is part of a strategy to sort of become the the everything for those companies. Um, you know, you see that a little bit with expanding from just the video conferencing to things like Zoom phone and Zoom conference rooms, and, and there's expanding out that way. I'm curious if they would want to take a step into like having a Teams like competitor or any other sort of business software that they can sort of allow a company that. Uh, buys into Zoom's offerings to stop using something else. Um, now I don't know what that company that they would acquire would be. I don't know. There, it might. I'm assuming there's got to be some Teams competitors out there. Asana. Yeah, something like that. Um, but I just think they have too much cash and are too focused on improving their offerings to not make some sort of acquisition. And we saw them try to acquire. Was it Five Nine? And that that did that got voted down by shareholders. Um, so I, I, that's my prediction for 23. I, th- I think we see Zoom do something. I think Zoom's going to get acquired. You know, I, I almost said 
as part of mine or they'll get acquired, but I didn't want to go both ways. So tell me why. Why do you think they'll get acquired? So I'm going to get to the why, but first there's kind of, we've already seen a handful of these cash burn, very beaten down tech companies get acquired. What's the one this week? It was Coupa Software. Yeah, Coupa, right? So Coupa stock is up like almost 90% over the past month or so from its lows a little bit earlier this year. But the acquisition price, Jeff, how, what is like 70% below the peak? It was like, seven, I think it was 78% below its, its all-time right. high or something like that. So we know 80%. there's going to be, and there's been other ones. Um, the, the, the private equity business that's buying Coupa has bought at least one or two others earlier this year, over the past year, using this same approach, right? It's, it's buying them and paying a premium to the recent low, but substantially below like the 2020, um, you know, basically about a year ago, 2021 peak that we saw. So we know a ton of those are going to get taken out because they don't have the cash flows to support their business and the cost of capital environments flipped upside down from where they were. Um, so they're going to have to get bought. So with all that said, this is Zoom is a is a cash cow, right? They got like five billion dollars in cash, far more cash than debt. They gen, they've generated a billion dollars in free cash flow over the past year. Um, the Eric Yuan controls the company, right? He's the founder, CEO, controlling shareholder, um, and it seems like this is like the least likely to get acquired company. Um, and maybe it's not Zoom, maybe it's George Kurtz makes the same with, with CrowdStrike. It's the founder, CEO, controls the business. It's a cash flow positive business. But we're going to get stunned by one of these companies that the stock is well below its, its, its all-time high, that doesn't need money, right, that ends up getting acquired, right? And we're going to be stunned because we're anchoring on where the price was and we're thinking, well, we've got a young founder, CEO, with con- majority control of the company. There's no reason for it to be acquired, and sometimes people just get tired and they're now billionaires and they're ready to move on, right? So I think maybe Salesforce goes after Zoom, right? And here's part of it too. Deidre, we've seen Salesforce go through how many co-CEOs over the past three years? At least a couple, right? And uh, now just, we have just two so far. Just two, but two over the past three years. And now right. their founder... What's his, what's his, I can't remember their founder who's been the Benioff. Mark Benioff. Yeah, Benioff, right. So Benioff's back in charge, right? He's well, like, he was always in charge. <laughs> well, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, he's, he's the clear number one, and there's not, there's not even a 1B anymore, right? And, and, but he's always been the king of MA. He's built Salesforce on MA over the years and generally has been pretty good at it. And I could see him going after something like Zoom where it, it doesn't fit directly, but it's, a, it's, 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 it's close enough and adjacent enough that I can see him trying to go after it. And you may have a situation with Eric Yuan where he's like, you know what, I'm just going to take my however many billion dollars in equity and I'm going to take some time off until I get bored and then I'm going to found another business. I think you guys might be saying some of the same things that – Zoom's sort of stuck in this middle space. If you're familiar with the smiling curve, you know, right. on the left to right, right, left is like is like the niche small companies. Here's this little piece of SaaS software we do. On the right side is like Microsoft and Salesforce and Google. 
and and then there's a value extraction is the y-axis so the companies extracting value are these real high value niche players or the like big conglomerates and if you're stuck in the middle you're kind of screwed and zoom has sort of happened upon this amazing business over the over the last three years and the question is do they go buy a bunch of these niche companies and stitch them together to try to become a competitor to Microsoft and Salesforce and, and all these big giants, or do they sell out to them? This is the same thing that's happening with Activision Blizzard, right? This is why they're, they're getting acquired is they're like, well, there's no future for us in this middle zone. So I think you're kind of both saying the same thing. You're just saying, arguing that one is, you know, Jeff is saying they're going to go one direction and buy the niche players. And Jeff, Jason's saying they're actually going to just sell out to the big guys. Well, and I, I want to hear other people's thoughts on this too, because I'm not, I don't have the market caps of acquired companies in my head enough to answer this question. But one thing, the reason I would tilt my answer more towards it's going to acquire someone versus get acquired is it's a $20 billion company right now. And you know that it's going to be higher than that when the, if they get acquired, right? Because there's going to be some premium to the current value of the company. And it's a twenty billion dollar that trades for less than twenty times free cash flow. Yeah, and then when you think right let's, let's, but now, think about the kind of, the size of the company that could make this acquisition, and then think about the regulatory concerns, right? So, like right. a big, huge right. tech company like Microsoft could easily acquire Zoom, but then that's a direct competitor. The regulators are not exactly lie. right. So, right. like, and so this is where I, the reason I don't know enough to say for sure is like I don't know the last handful of companies that. Salesforce acquired. I don't know what their market caps were. Like, I don't remember what um, Slack was. I think that was the last big one. So that would be my only reason to say. I agree with you, Travis. Like, they are in that like middle ground. They sort of have to decide to go one way or the other. Um, but the size of them makes me feel like they're more likely to acquire someone than be acquired. Yeah, and 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 I think that's probably the case. But but again, that's exactly my point, Jeff. And I think yours too, as Travis was alluding to. Zoom is a company that's. They have a lot of money and they're generating cash flow, but to get out of that middle and to be bigger and continue to develop their suite and be more important for the enterprise where they get stickier, something's got to change. All right. We're, we're going to count that as your prediction because we don't really want to hear anything else from you. Um, all right. Before we dive into everyone's bespoke reckless predictions, which is the fancy title we gave them because we are a very fancy podcast, um, let's go through some questions for everyone to answer. Um, and we can go in no particular order. Whoever has an answer can jump in first. Uh, here we go. Favorite stock for 2023? Wynn Resorts. Interesting. Why? Uh, people went crazy after a three-month lockdown in the U.S. China has been locked down for three years. Macau is going to be insane whenever people are allowed to go freely there. I don't know if that's going to happen. By Travis, how much bigger is Macau in terms of the gaming business than Vegas? Pre-pandemic, it was six times the size of Las Vegas, basically just from Baccarat. That's, that's 98% of the revenue there. Uh, insanely profitable casinos, and the casino stocks are still just fractions of where they were pre-pandemic. So the the leverage play there would be a Melco Resorts, but to be on a little bit safer side, Wynn Resorts would be my pick. Deidre? All right. Gosh. Uh, hmm. It's hard. So we're going to call you back in a year. <laughs> You're gonna well, well. I mean, that's that's tricky because, like, what's there are things that I know will continue to go up. Things that I love. I mean, I could talk about Prologis all day. You know, I mean, that's like, you know, I mean, I think I think every time I get asked, I say Prologis because it's you know the biggest uh, warehouse. Well, you've never I said think, it here. 
Well, I've never said it here. So there you go. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I, I just, I love this company so much, but the other one that, that actually has done worse that I think is going to come back is AmeriCold, which is, uh, the cold storage play. They had some leadership issues. They had a, they've had a bad run for a while, but I think over time, once they get that straightened out, I think that one is actually going to, going to do pretty well and will probably go up more because it's, because it's been down farther. Tyler. Favorite stock for 2023? Uh, I, I really don't have a lot right now. I'm Wait, not... <laughs> before you do it, before you do it, before you do it, what are the odds that any one of the other four of us even know what the hell it is? I kind of liked, I kind of like Deidre's Prologis one more than anything else because I'm, I'm of the opinion we're going to be in a relatively high interest rate environment. So cost of capital matters and Prologis it can borrow money at less than the rate of a U.S. Treasuries, like straight up right now. Their their credit worthiness is better than the U.S. government's, and in a in a cost in a capital intense business like real estate, where everyone else is renting or you know borrowing at six seven eight percent, and these guys are getting one percent. Please, I, I, you know, if you want to play the inflation arbitration game, that that seems like a, a good investment. Jeff, you're speaking for the people here, voice of the people. I, I'm actually sort of along the lines of what Travis was saying in terms of like pent up demand for things. I, I really like Airbnb heading into 2023. Um, for a couple reasons, I, I just think it's a, it's a business that just has a lot of, you know, growth ahead of it just because of the interest in it. But I've been really impressed with the way management has responded to, well, two things. They, they got real lean during the pandemic and as a result, they've seen their profitability take big steps forward over the past several quarters. But I like that they respond to all of the biggest complaints about the platform pretty quickly with, well, maybe not as quickly as some people would like, but they respond with solutions, right? So like their little winter release thing that came out a couple weeks ago, um, you know, they, they're making it easier for hosts to get on board. They're increasing what's covered under their uh, insurance policy, air cover, I think it's called. Um, they came, you know, the CEO on the Q3 earnings call came out and said it basically, it's unacceptable that, um, all you see is the overnight rate and all the fees are hidden and they're going to make a move towards like all in pricing. So you can compare apples to apples when you're deciding where to stay. Um, you know, those have been the big knocks against the company other than regulation concerns in certain places. Um, so I just think with the pent up demand to travel hasn't slowed down yet, even with people tightening their belts um, with high inflation and all that kind of stuff, and a leadership team that's been impressive for me. I like Airbnb in 2023. Travis, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this. Tyler, I'm not sure if this is one you follow, but thinking about everything that's happening with renewables in the U.S., the incentives kind of got reloaded, right, with the the new. Um, uh, legislation that was passed. Um, but, but I think that for a lot of like commercial and industrial companies that are looking at renewables, looking at things like storage, there are still challenges like to, from an operational perspective, right? They're interested. The incentives are great, but they're not in the business of running power, right? That's not their business. Um, I think that creates a really good, um, tailwind for a company like STEM, right? So STEM, Small company, uh, went public via SPAC. They've been around like a dozen years or so. The, a lot of people think of them as a battery company, like for big storage projects, um, for commercial users and utilities and all that kind of stuff. 
but really the battery is just like kind of the entree. Um, they make their money with Athena, which is this, um, and, and also energy, which is, uh, these are AI powered, uh, management tools. So, so Athena is, is how, um, battery operators can manage the ins and outs of battery, whether you're selling the power, whether you're using the power, whatever you're doing, whether the power is coming from renewable fleet or from the grid, whatever, you know, it helps you manage that. And then also energy is an acquisition they made that helps manage fleets of um, large um, um, utility scale um, and commercial scale solar. So managing all of those solar assets, right? So what I like about this is that the energy industry, whether you're talking oil and gas, whether you're talking selling wind turbines and, and solar panels are very commoditized and they're very cyclical. STEM is basically a SaaS company. They get recurring revenues. They sign like 20-year contracts with inflation adjusters and all those things. And I mean, their goal is like 70, 80% gross margins over time. And they're building that book of business. And I think in terms of like building a great predictable cash flow business that solves a real serious problem that's a reason a lot of um, organizations have not moved into renewables. I think it's wonderful. I think it's absolutely wonderful. This is a company that I just think has to prove it to me before I really buy it because I question how valuable that mode is because I, I've seen over the course of the last 10 years, a dozen other companies talk about doing this same thing um, and, and having it be a, having the software piece be a bolt on to something else they do like SunPower acquired a company that was supposedly going to do the same thing. Sunrun has talked about the same thing. So I, I like the idea. I just want to see it. And maybe this is, this is maybe a decade of the industry making me jaded. No, I get it. And the, the thing, I just want to say this again, because I think this is important. The difference with STEM is it's, it's kind of like Top Gun. They've inverted. Um, everybody else wanted to sell hardware and they bolted on some software as like an also thing. The software for them is the business, right? That's the core. That's their focus. And to me, that's a differentiator. I think you're right. They've still got to prove that, that there are durable competitive advantages to their software versus the other stuff. Um, but, but I really like this business. I like what they're doing. Hey, Jeff, what's next? All right. Well, I think we should do the opposite side of the coin. So not that anyone here necessarily is someone who would short a stock, but what is a stock that you would bet against in 2023? I, I may be giving away uh, some of my ideas for later, but I, I think Tesla is really going to have a tough year. They're discounting vehicles to just to get people to push them, push sales into the fourth quarter of 2022 um competitors are getting better and elon musk is more worried about i don't know breaking woke culture than building cars that's that just that's not the kind of company i want to invest in and the market seems to have kind of lost interest as well for for, for the record for anybody that doesn't maybe know what travis is uh talking about you obviously haven't been on twitter following what musk is tweeting yeah it's yeah, there's there's a lot of distraction going on right there. I don't know if it's a complete short, but any company over the past six months that has basically promised to turn to unit profitability by the end of 2023, I'm going to take the I'm going to take the under that actually happening, 
And uh, I think there's going to be a long slog for a lot of these cash burning companies that have been saying we're going to turn to unit profitability and you know become pre-cash flow positive by the end of 2023. I ain't making any big bets to say that's going to happen. Deidre? You know, it, it came up when we were talking about, about Zoom a little bit, but Asana, you know, I think some of these smaller software companies, uh, I, I just don't know if they're going to, gonna, you know, do well in the long term. There's so much enterprise competition and I think, you know, companies are just getting down to the essentials. So, so something like Asana, I, I don't think that's going to have a, a great year. At what point yeah, is their no, CEO I, I really just going like- to buy the company though? Well, I, I, eventually, isn't isn't Dustin Moskovitz going to get tired of of just that, that pouring be. more and more money into it? <laughs> yeah, because then because then you you actually have to pay the cash burn literally out of your pocket, which he's yeah. kind of doing right now. He but put what three hundred fifty million dollars mm-hmm. into it recently. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Like it was over a billion dollars a year ago. I think that he invested, if I remember, in buying right, shares in the open like market. A, yeah, like a, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I think the point there is, is really good is that we talked about the beginning of the show, like the Coopas and the other companies that are a lot of those companies that are not making money that are going to get taken out because they don't have a choice. I, the, I think, I think we maybe underestimate how many of them were able to go public over the past five years in the, in the cheap capital environments on the idea of eventually getting to cash flow positive, but no real plan to actually do it, right? It's like just the idea that eventually it would happen, right? It's going to happen. We're going to have a great product and we're going to have really good gross margins and we're going to have a lot of recurring revenue and we'll, we'll be profitable one day. And Jeff, on, a, on a, one of our podcast last week, you talked about it with, with, with Asana specifically, you know, yeah. that we're seeing up to the right with the revenue and up to the right with like all the customer metrics, but none of the cash flow metrics are improving. Yeah. And I mean, I, I probably would have chosen Asana if Deidre didn't, but just I'll, I'll go on that same theme of like my, I wouldn't short, but like a, a, a set, a set of companies I think will struggle are all of the ones that are like Asana, like exactly what we're talking about. All of these SaaS um, companies that became prominent and, and darlings of the market simply because of like year over year revenue growth that was absurd but everyone was sort of ignoring the cash burn lack of profitability um i think some of those you might see become or take steps towards profitability the ones that actually have the ability to do so you know they actually can take the foot off the growth pedal a little bit and be a little bit more profitable but a lot of them won't be able to and like you said they're going to get taken out or they're just going to super, you know, really struggle. So, like, I guess I'm not picking an individual stock to do poorly in 2023, but I would say like the SaaS group <laughs> writ large, I think, is really going to struggle, with the exception of uh, you know maybe a couple outliers within that group. Yeah, and those outliers are the ones that can actually make money. All right, this is going to be a fun one here, Jeff. Who do we who do we ask to go first on stocks or crypto for 2023? I know I, I know who we have to ask to go last. Yes, and his name rhymes with Schmavis Schmoyum. Travis, you're going last on this one because we know you have strong feelings. But the question for everyone else, stocks or crypto for 2023? Do it, Crow. I have spent zero minutes looking at crypto, so I don't know. Like, I, it, It's actually just like a uh, quality of life thing for me. I just 
There's lots of other things that I'm interested in, and I'm just not interested in crypto. Maybe it goes up. I don't know. I have no idea what's going on over there. So Tyler's take is crypto harms his quality of life. But he doesn't know anything about it. (laughs) Deidre, what about you? Well, I mean, we're, we're lumping all of all of crypto in, into a bucket. I think. Thank um, you, thank you for yeah, saying that's, that. That's thank the first you. <laughs> I do think, I do think Bitcoin is going to come back a little bit. I don't think it's it's going to rocket ship again. But I mean, I think I think during this shakeout, Bitcoin Bitcoin is the one that benefits. Yeah, I think so. I think I think it's more than than just than just Bitcoin. Like I think Bitcoin benefits is like the. The, the asset class, right? The, the store of value, that digital store of value, right? That still like that's, that's the use case for crypto now and kind of continues to be like that's the one that's actually it can be used for. I mean, it's been used to destroy value <laughs> over the past yeah. year, but like it is, it is a thing where you can store value. All of the other stuff though, right? Uh, here's where I'm torn on this one. I think, and then... Jeff, you want to weigh in and then Travis, but like I'm, th- I'm thinking about crypto and to me, the biggest story of the first half of the year was the washout in value. We're really going back to like October, November of 2021, like that six or eight month period. The biggest story was the washout of value because of the tech implosion, right? And the reality is that the market was viewing crypto assets in the same way it was viewing tech stocks, high growth get rich quick, you know, not necessarily profitable business models in, in the case of crypto, those, the, the tokens, right? And all of that got, as soon as, as soon as the floodgate started, it continued. That was the, I mean, that was over the past year and change. That's like the first story, like the crypto winter, right? But really what we've seen over the past few months is old fashioned fraud, right? This is, this is, and we saw that because of crypto winter, right? All of the fraud, all of the lending of, of customer assets to the hedge funds and, and all of that back stuff, that shit was working really good and making a lot of people money as long as crypto was going up. It's when we saw the washout in asset values. And as Buffett says, you know, we found out who was, who was swimming naked, right? When the tide went down, when those asset classes collapsed, and it no longer worked, right? Because you couldn't cover those obligations to other parties and your fraud was there for the world to be seen. So I think there's a good case that crypto as an asset class, like all of it. So you're talking about the tokens because all, all the shit coins and all that stuff is, you know, a lot of that's not going to really ever recover. I think hopefully it doesn't recover, but the stuff of value like Bitcoin, um, and then the stuff that can be a store value and also like for transactional stuff, Ethereum to a certain extent, Solana, right? Um, like the ones that there's actually tools can be built on the rails that can generate economic value, right? I think, I think we're going to start to see, because all the fraud is, not all the fraud, but like the people that are still involved in crypto are the ones that are actually dedicated to building stuff on it, right? And leveraging the technology in the ways that it can be disruptive, Right. So as brutally painful as it's been, crypto may be healthier in a way right now than it's been in a very, very long time, because it's only people that are there to build stuff on it and not just people that are trying to make a bunch of money quickly. And this could be a good year for crypto. I I only have one quick thing to say, because I know Travis is like he's like giddy with excitement here to talk about crypto. Um, 
I, I might not have much to say. No, I mean, look, I if I if you had to make me pick a an asset class that's going to do better in 2023, I would go with stocks. But I also think crypto is going to do better than I than I think most people would probably think it would. And it, to, but for me, a lot of that centers around well, the little bit I've learned about it over this year, thanks to you, Travis. But also the whole idea of like run towards the thing that everyone's running away from, right? So it it's become such a toxic thing, just sort of. In the in the zeitgeist of the investing world, in a lot of people's minds, that that alone makes me feel like it's probably going to have a better next twelve to eighteen months than pe- most people might think, just because that typically seems to be how things go. Um, but go ahead, Travis. I know you have a uh, more thoughts. Well, some of what Jason was saying was along the lines of what I think, and you know, we can go back to a, a year of me talking about. Um, I have no idea what one token or another is going to do in the next month or six months or year. What I'm fundamentally interested in is how can we use blockchain technology to do things that are disruptive? And that's where I think what's been really interesting over the last three to six months is the people that are still here are thinking about doing real things like, using Solana Pay to basically kneecap Visa, MasterCard, American Express, the entire credit card industry, because they have no response. If you say our fees are going to be 0.001 pennies, what is Visa going to do to respond to that? Like they, they have no response. That's what disruption looks like, is, is the incumbent saying, we don't even know what to do with that. That's fundamentally really interesting to me. You know, NFTs are something that have created a new opportunity to fund businesses to, to be sort of a seed round for businesses. I say that with the understanding that a lot of projects are going to get that wrong and there are going to be a few projects that are going to get that right. You're not buying equity in a company, but there is something there, you know, and, and I think that's what, that's what I'm trying to write about on, um, in my, you know, various sources, including the right project is, you know what what is what is new and disruptive here we are sort of in the 1995 internet phase where there were a whole bunch of kids who thought this was really cool and thought it was going to change the world and everybody else thought they were idiots and now everybody thinks that people who are interested in crypto and the blockchain are idiots um but coming out of this is going to be something really meaningful and i don't know exactly what it is but we're starting to see sort of these these green shoots and they're going to fly under the radar for probably a lot longer than than people think so is crypto going to go up um i have no idea but i think there's going to be a lot of really interesting things built in 2023 that will you know five years from now be really meaningful last word on this because it's my show um a lot of the conversations people are having about crypto as an asset are the same things that people are saying about the internet and 2001. Um, and here we are, you know, two decades later. I mean, we're recording a podcast on the internet, right? Everything we do is on the internet. I'm not saying that we're going to see the same thing with blockchain, but the point is, is you think about where we are, right? And what the conversations are. If there is anything there, this is the time that the assets can look the most interesting to invest in. Okay, Jeff, it is time for the bougie part of our show. That's right. We're, we're going to do bespoke reckless predictions. 
Yes, this is the big this is the big ending. This is the we asked everyone to come with their their 2023 reckless prediction. Um, and because they are customized to them, they are bespoke. Um, so we can switch the order up here. Let's uh let's go with uh Tyler first, put him on the spot. Tyler, what is your reckless prediction for 2023? Uh I don't know if it's necessarily reckless, and I think Jeff's gonna take the other side of it than I am, but I am of the belief that inflation is going to stay elevated and as well as interest rates through 2023 and potentially beyond. Um, I think one of the catalysts people that we have been talking about is a low interest rate uh, or a pivot, I guess you'd say, toward back down is uh, things like the China reopen and, you know, some stagnant stagnation in higher interest rates right now. But uh, one thing that I'm intensely looking at when it comes to this is this idea of reshoring and kind of rethinking global supply chains. Uh, For years, we have benefited immensely uh, from globalization. And it's one of the reasons that we have been able to keep inflation uh, low is by, you know, utilizing supply chains globally, cheaper labor elsewhere, things like that. And with the concept of reshoring taking hold, um, people thinking not just in labor arbitrage goes away when you do that. Right. And so we're going to see periods, I think, of higher wages because we're going to be in a tighter labor market as a result of all this reshoring and manufacturing. You know, what is the, the, how much have we just talked about semiconductor investment uh, coming like 30, $50 billion? That's just a small example of that. And I think there's, uh, there's business, uh, you know, strategy behind it of, making sure that you have proper inventories. There's some geopolitical strategic stuff where, you know, maybe we're not 100% reliant on, or, you know, not 100, that's being uh, hyperbole here, but, you know, highly leveraged to uh, cheap labor in China and elsewhere. So I think a lot of those factors are going to result in, um, I think it's going to, result in strong labor markets and kind of decent growth, but it's not going to tamper inflation. It's not going to you know, lead to this Fed pivot in lower interest rates environments. What that means for the market, I'm not sure, but I think that's going to be one of the big secular trends over the next few years that's going to be hard to you know, translate into this low interest environment that we have or declining that we have been used to for the past 30 years. You know, I'll, all right. So I'll jump in and do mine next, only because it, it's sort of related to Tyler's, and then I'll let everyone else jump in. And mine's not nearly as sophisticated, but um, I, I'm I'm less convinced about the um, inflation part. But I, my reckless prediction is that there will be no no recession in 2023. Um, you know, it, it's almost like everyone's assuming we are in one or there will be one. It, it's treated as inevitable by a lot of people you listen to, and for that reason alone, I think it's not going to happen. Um, I do think inflation is going to be lower, but not back to where it was, you know, a year ago. I don't think we're going to see that for a while, but I think we're going to see this slow and steady sort of trended back down. Um, I still think the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates. I think that's going to be part of it, um, but I just don't think it's going to be nearly. And this is a completely unsophisticated take. It doesn't feel recessiony enough to me as just an average person. Um, the, you know, the, the unemployment's really low. Um, I still think a lot of this, a lot of why we're in this p- predicament to begin with has to do with 
more about dislocation in the supply chain and where people spend their money because of the pandemic versus anything else. You know, we, when you can't do things for two years, the money goes towards the stuff. And I think that kind of threw things out of whack. Um, it just, it doesn't feel like it's anything much more than that to me. So that's my reckless prediction, no recession, better inflation, and that's it. I think there's going to be a recession, but Jeff, Tyler, I think you're both right about inflation. Um, Tyler, that it's going to be high and Jeff, that it's going to be lower. So you look back at the 1980s, right? That seems, that's like our benchmark for everything that we've been going through. Everybody talks about the eighties and that inflation. And I think the important thing to remember is that inflation, um, in 1990 was still over 4%, right? The Fed's target is like 2 to 3%, right? So inflation very, very long after all of the, the, the things that the Fed tried to do to bring, to bring it down was still, it was over 4% for most of the decade. I think in 86 or 87, it might have fallen a little bit. Travis, you spoke up. What's your what's your reckless prediction? All right, let's get really reckless here. Tesla is going to lose money in 2023. Uh, in the last 12 months, so this would be Q4 2021 through Q3 2022, they've had net income of $11.1 billion. But I mentioned earlier that there's, we're already starting to see some cracks in that. They actually did a lot to raise prices over the last couple of years and expand their margins. They're now having to discount vehicles. We've found out recently that they've, uh, they're slowing production in their China plant. That's where they get a lot of their low cost vehicles that go to places like Europe. I just, I think that the environment is going to be very different for Tesla. They have been in grow, grow, grow mode at all costs, but they're fundamentally a manufacturing company. And manufacturing companies have to deal with supply and demand. And when you're increasing supply at 50% a year, you then also have to increase demand 50% a year. And if your demand is flat, but your supply goes up, what are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to slow down your production and just leave your capacity idle? Are you going to discount your vehicles? None of these are really good options for Tesla. And I just think, I think we've already seen the early signs that things are not looking as positive as they have for the last decade. And, you know, we talked about it earlier, but Elon Musk seems to be kind of checked out. And I would argue that a huge amount of Tesla's value is just based on people following Elon Musk. So if he's, if he's not into it, then investors are going to, are going to bounce too. I have a bit of an analogy for, for Tesla that I think is really important. Look at what's happened with Netflix over the past year year and a half for the first time in its existence. Um, Netflix has had to deal with very targeted, very focused competition from entrenched, well-capitalized incumbents. Right. And it's been tough. Its growth has slowed. It's having to spend substantially more money and it's going to continue to have to spend substantially more money because every it's now it's, Everybody's trying to get into the business that it's basically been in by itself. The same thing's happening with Tesla, right? Tesla is now facing and will increasingly face competition in a way that it never has before. And that's, that's just going to be a real game changer. I think, I think it's, 
You could prove you could prove right, Travis. And just go look you at right. go make a chart. If you're an investor in Tesla or, or you think they have a really bright bright future, go pick out competing vehicles to like the Model Three, and and put them down in a table. Put their price. Put their range, leg room, whatever whatever you want. Tesla is almost always the most expensive vehicle. And so as more people start to think about like, do I want to spend $80,000 on this, you know, five seat vehicle or is the $45,000 one good enough? <laughs> you know, I think that there's going to be a lot more people um, looking at something like the, the Volkswagen ID four as really attractive compared to the boy you'd have to spend for a similar vehicle from Tesla. So I don't know. I just, I, I think it's, it's going to be a lot tougher here than people think, even though the fact, even though the stock is down quite a bit over the last six months. Deidre. Well, I got to bring it back to real estate, right? Uh, so I'm calling it. I buying, I buying's over. I, I, I buying was a failed experiment. It's, it's officially done. I think that, I think that open door is going to, maybe try to to stay afloat i think they're i think they're going to find that there's no that there's no capital to help them do that and i think they're going to get picked up by somebody but i think i buying as an experiment it it didn't work out i think that the the lower uh the sort of this would have been the test right as as sales go down this would have been the absolute test for you know for i buying it's not happening. It's it's over. I, I I still believe that someone will acquire the company. You know, maybe Zillow rolls it in because right now both Redfin and Zillow are basically pushing the the iBuyer offers to Open Door. But overall, I, I I think it's done, and I and I think it'll be a while before the real estate industry tries something like that again for a while. So it's, I saw Tyler dancing on the grave of the iBuying <laughs> just like industry Sam's while out. you were. Yeah, yeah, Deidre. I, so to me, this is this is my takeaway from from all of this, and I've I've talked about this before publicly. It's not, not nothing new. I, I never really bought into i buying as a. So basically, the idea here is you're taking house flipping, and you're scaling it up at a corporate level, and and trying to like use technology in some way and your platform as for like customer acquisition and that sort of thing. And and the, the the problem I already I always had wrapping my head around is it's real estate. Every market is different. You need to understand market dynamics where you're operating. You have to have very dependable partners, uh, contractors of all, all of those pieces that can be very different from each market to the next. And the fact that it's highly cyclical and oh the most leveraged industry you can go into outside of being a bank, right? And the technology can only solve like part of one of those problems. Is that why iBuying is, is failing? What, is, there, is there more to it? What do you think? I think there's a bunch of reasons why, why it's failing. I, I think that the biggest reason why it's failing is that they thought that there would be economies of scale that there just weren't. Yeah. They just thought that they would be able to, to fix individual houses at, at scale and it would make sense and that they could buy at the right time and sell at the right time. And it, it, it didn't work. But I think, I think the hidden part of that is how hard it is to, to repair things at scale, how, how fragmented the entire world of, of construction is, how fragmented, especially at that time, the supply chain was. And I think all of that kind of weighed in on, on what, on 
why this didn't work out. So every fragmented industry is not an opportunity for consolidation. Sometimes they're fragmented for a reason. Okay, my prediction here is our last reckless prediction here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say tech stocks. Actually, before I say that, the worst performing sector, the S&P 500s, S&P's stock sectors were telecom, was telecom. And that, that includes companies like Meta, right? So it's not just like Verizon and those kind of companies. That was the worst. Tech was the fourth worst, down 23% this year. I'm not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say tech is down for the year. I don't think tech's gonna be down for the year. But the tech sector had outperformed the S&P 500 going back to 2010. Like every year except for three years. And then last year absolutely got smashed. I think it's gonna underperform the market again because there's gonna be so much rationalization of the crappy companies out there that can't make a profit that end up going public or going private or or don't make it, right? Some are going to die on the vine because their assets are not worth anybody paying for. Um, yeah, I don't think the sector itself, as a, as a sector, is, is my investable idea. There's some great companies, but I think it's going to do, do bad. Jeff? No, I, I like that. I agree with it. I think tied to that is going to be, I, if I was going to make another prediction, which I'm not, but I think we're going to see a lot more M&A activity in 2023 than we have in the last couple of years, because oh, yeah. that's going to be the byproduct of a lot of what you just talked about, especially in the tech sector. Well, nobody's well, buying Tyler? Carvana. So well, this is my question, though, is that <laughs> the tech as the market, nice I, I'm sorry if I'm using the S&P 500 here, but tech is so much of a large component of the market. If it's going, how, I, I almost kind of struggle with like, you know, you know, how can the largest component of the market, you know, uh, underperform and the, and the market itself will, you know, outperform, like where are you getting your alpha from? That's going to, you know, move the market for, you know, above what tech can provide. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not arguing that point there. You're kind of making, you're kind of making my argument a little bit for me because again, so many of those big tech companies are very large market cap companies. That's the reason that I think it's going to, it's going to underperform the index, but it's not the majority of the index, right? I think that's the key. Okay, Jeff, that's it. That's our 2023 Reckless Predictions show. You want to thank our guests? You should thank our guests. I do want to thank our guests, uh, Deidre and Travis and Tyler. Thank you for being here. I also want to uh, prompt the audience to share your Reckless Predictions. After you listen to this episode, um, find us on Twitter, Tell us what you, your reckless predictions are. Tell us if you, if you agree or disagree with the ones we made. And uh, we'll, we'll try to uh, do this again next year. Maybe we'll find a, a better way to do it. All right. As always, we love to answer the hard questions about investing out there. And we love to have our friends like Deidre, Travis, and Tyler come on and help give their answers too. But friends, you've got to find your own answers. And we, we believe in you. You can do it. Jeff, see you next time, buddy. See you next time. <laughs>